Welcome back to the Plane Crash Diaries podcast with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This week, we'll probe the Tenerife disaster, which took place on the 27th of March, 1977, and remains the most deadly aviation accident in history. 583 people died when two Boeing 747s collided on the Canary Island of Tenerife. One of the Boeings operated by KLM and the other Pan Am. This led to a major aviation safety initiative known as Cockpit Resource Management, or CRM, which is now part of pilot training where combined crew input is encouraged and the captain can be questioned. It also led to other changes in communication methodology between planes waiting to take off in the tower, as well as setting English as the language of aviation. The problem with CRM is that it comes up against different cultures in the world, where the decisions by the strong man in charge are not generally contradicted. This is thought to be behind the accident in Pakistan during COVID-19 lockdown in May 2020, where authorities say not only was CRM ignored by the senior pilot, he also apparently tried to land an Airbus at 240 knots, well over its recommended landing speed. So, back to Tenerife, 1977, an incident which still shocks those who hear the details for the first time. There were no survivors from the KLM aircraft, and only 61 of the 396 passengers and crew on the Pan Am aircraft survived. Pilot error was the primary cause, as the KLM captain began his takeoff run without obtaining air traffic control clearance in extremely dense fog. But as you'll hear, there's more to this story. The conversation between Pan Am, KLM and the ATC was peppered with confusing messages. Other contributing factors were a terrorist incident at Grand Canaria Airport on a separate island that had caused many flights to be diverted to Los Rodeos, a small airport on the island of Tenerife, not well equipped to handle aircraft of such size arriving together. This increased the stress on the ATC and mistakes were bound to be made. The Canary Islands are infamous amongst pilots for the extreme wind and weather conditions that spring up on the archipelago off the coast of Africa in the Atlantic Ocean. The weather was to play a major role in this catastrophe as well. So, the terror incident, which developed at Grand Canaria on the main island, saw the smaller regional airport of Los Rodeos quickly becoming congested with parked airplanes blocking the only taxiway and forcing departing aircraft to taxi on the runway instead. In aviation parlance, it's called backtracking. A normal process for me in a four-seater Cirrus SR20 flying around South Africa's small airfields. Once you're at the threshold, you swing around 180 degrees to take off into the wind. Swinging a Boeing 747 around is far more challenging, particularly when other Boeings are doing the same thing around you. It requires careful planning and a heightened sense of situational awareness. This created a dangerous situation while patches of thick fog drifted across the Los Rodeos airfield, which meant the air traffic control personnel in the tower could not see the aircraft on the ground. Local weather conditions at the time included bunches of thick cloud being blown over the runway and batches of wind topping 20 knots. It also meant the KLM flight crew could not see the Pan Am aircraft on the runway until the moment just before the collision. I spent some time in the last podcast tracing the history of CRM and how it was instituted, and in this episode we'll focus on the events running up to the Tenerife disaster. So here are the finer details. Tenerife was an unscheduled stop for both flights. Their destination was Gran Canaria Airport, also known as Las Palmas Airport, or Gando, serving Las Palmas on the nearby island of Gran Canaria. Both islands are part of the Canary Islands, 
an autonomous community of Spain located in the Atlantic Ocean off the southwest coast of Morocco. KLM Flight 4805 was a charter flight operating on behalf of Holland International Travel Group and had arrived from Amsterdam Airport in Schiphol, Netherlands. Its cockpit crew consisted of Captain Jakob Feldhazen van Zanten, who was 50, First Officer Klaus Meers, age 42, and Flight Engineer Willem Schroeder, age 48. At the time of the accident, Feldhazen van Zanten was KLM's Chief Flight Instructor, with 11,700 flight hours, 1,545 on the 747. This was one of the reasons why it's believed that the first officer did not question what he said. And yet Meers was a highly experienced pilot with 9,200 flight hours, but he only had 95 hours on the Boeing 747. Schroeder, the engineer, had logged 17,031 flight hours, 543 on the 747. The aircraft was a Boeing 747-206B registration Papa Hotel Bravo Uniform Foxtrot and called Rain. The KLM jet was carrying 14 crew and 235 passengers, including 52 children. Most of the KLM passengers were Dutch, also on board four Germans, two Austrians and two Americans. After the aircraft landed at Tenerife, the passengers were transported to the airport terminal. You can imagine that both the passengers and crew were rather disgruntled about terrorists ruining their trip. It was then that one of the inbound passengers who lived on the island with her boyfriend made a life-changing decision not to reboard the 747. That meant there were now 234 passengers on the aircraft. Her boyfriend lived on Tenerife and she decided that flying to Grand Canary then back the next day was a waste of time. Lucky woman. Pan Am Flight 1736 had originated at Los Angeles International Airport and stopped at New York's JFK International. The aircraft was a Boeing 747-121, registration November 736 Papa Alpha and named Clipper Victor. Of the 380 passengers on board, most were retirees, but there were also two children. Fourteen of the passengers had boarded in New York and a new crew also took over. They were Captain Victor Grubbs, who was 56 and had 21,043 hours of flight time, 564 on Boeing 747s. The right seat was First Officer Robert Bragg, who was 39 and had logged 10,800 hours, including 2,796 on Boeings. Joining them on the flight deck was Engineer George Warnes, 46, and he had logged 15,210 flight hours, 559 on the 747. So, these are two very experienced sets of aircrew. Just as an aside, one of the odd facts about the Pan Am Boeing, registration November 736 Papa Alpha, was that it was the first ever Boeing 747 to be hijacked. That was a few years earlier while flying en route between JFK and San Juan, Puerto Rico. It was diverted to Havana and Cuba, but no one was hurt and no damage was caused to the plane in that incident. Once again, though, the threat of terrorist action was to cause the flights a great deal of trouble, but this time, diverting to a smaller regional airport was going to lead to many deaths and changes in the world of aviation. Both flights had been routine until they approached the islands. At 1.15 in the afternoon, a bomb planted by the separatist Canary Island Independent Movement exploded in the terminal of Grand Canaria Airport, injuring eight people. The separatists had phoned a warning to airport officials who received another call shortly afterwards that there was a second bomb. The civil aviation authorities had therefore closed the airport temporarily after the explosion 
and all incoming flights bound for Gran Canaria had been diverted to Los Rodeos. In the first of possible alternative outcomes to the events that followed, the Pan Am crew stated that they had more than two hours fuel reserves and preferred to circle in a holding pattern until landing clearance was given at Gran Canaria. Spanish ATC refused the request and they were ordered to divert to Tenerife. The big issue here was Los Rodeos was a regional airport that could not easily accommodate all of the traffic diverted from Gran Canaria. Amongst the jumble of planes on the apron and taxiway were five large international airliners. The airport had only one runway and one major taxiway with four shorter taxiways connecting the two. Boeing 747s are huge planes and this small airport just didn't have the space to allow so many to park on its apron, so they ended up having to park on the taxiway. This had a knock-on effect. It meant planes had to use the runway both to take off and land as well as to taxi. Most small airports I've landed at have this weakness, which can cause pilots to spend time in a holding pattern and time their arrivals depending on how busy the airport is, and Los Rodeos was getting very busy indeed. After a five-hour delay, authorities reopened Gran Canaria Airport once the bomb threat had been contained. The Pan Am plane was first up and ready to depart from Tenerife, but access to the runway was being obstructed by the KLM Boeing parked between it and the runway. There was also a refueling vehicle on the taxiway, further confounding Pan Am's takeoff. KLM Captain Jakob Feltesen van Zanten had made the decision to fully refuel at Los Rodeos instead of Las Palmas, apparently to save time when they arrived at their destination. This decision further complicated an already complex set of actions on the apron and the taxiway. Tensions rose as the lengthy refuel meant other planes were sitting waiting for KLM to finish. The Pan Am aircraft, for example, was unable to maneuver around the refueling KLM. There was not enough space. Apparently there was less than four meters that separated their wings, and the Pan Am captain thought it best to wait, instead of taking a chance trying to taxi past KLM. The refueling took over half an hour, with the KLM passengers being forced to disembark, after which they were brought back to the aircraft. As with all accidents, it's the small incidents that start to compound. There was a Dutch family of four. They went missing, which meant a search through the terminal building, delaying the flight still further. That's when the woman who worked as a tour guide decided she'd not reboard the flight to Las Palmas because she lived on Tenerife and thought it was crazy to head to Gran Canaria only to return the next day. And her boyfriend was on Tenerife already, so her logical action saved her life. She became the only survivor of the entire crew and passengers on board the KLM aircraft who'd flown from Amsterdam to the Spanish islands on flight 4805. Because the KLM plane was first to land, everything now reverted to first come, first served. Refueling over, finally, the Dutch captain started engines and maneuvered the Boeing along the taxiway, backtracking to the end of runway 30 as clouds began to swirl along the runway. Tenerife had no ground radar and with fog now enveloping the airport, controllers in the tower relied on radio communications to keep track of each aircraft's location. That's when things began to go badly wrong and the air crews on both planes, as well as the ATC, had been lulled into a false sense of security by the long wait. Now, they were in a rush to get all planes off the ground. Get their itis had set in. It's easy enough from our armchairs to criticise or to pass judgement now in the 21st century, so I'll stick to exactly what happened with as little editorialising as possible until the end. 
So the tower instructed KLM to taxi down the entire length of the runway, make a 180-degree turn at the end to get into takeoff position on 3-0. While KLM was backtracking on the runway, the controller asked the flight crew to report when it was ready to copy the ATC clearance. Because the flight crew was performing the checklist, this clearance was postponed until the aircraft was in takeoff position on runway 30. Usually, radar clearance is obtained before the taxi and redoubt by the ATC to the air crew, and they read it back. Deviation from standard procedure had already begun. Shortly afterwards, the Pan Am was instructed to follow the KLM down the same runway and exit at the third exit on their left and use the parallel taxiway. Initially, the American crew was unclear as to whether the controller had told them to take the first or the third exit. The crew asked for clarification, and the controller responded emphatically by replying, The third one, sir. One, two, three, third, third one. Using a specific taxiway number is specified, in this case, Charlie 3. But the controller didn't say Charlie 3. He said, one, two, three, third, the third one. The crew began the taxi and proceeded to identify the taxiways using the airport chart. The taxiways, though, were unmarked. The crew successfully identified the first two taxiways, Charlie 1, Charlie 2. But their discussion in the cockpit indicated that they failed to find the third taxiway, Charlie 3. The Tenerife airport did not have markings or signs to identify runway exits, and now the air crew were making their way along a runway in thick fog trying to visually identify a taxiway which had no markings. Anyone watching this develop would have begun to feel uneasy. The Pan Am crew remained unsure of their position on the runway from now on. In fact, they had already passed Charlie 3 and were approaching Charlie 4. Adding to the difficulty, these smaller taxiways off the main runway were angled at nearly 150 degrees, which would mean they had turned the 747 back almost towards the main apron when they turned. The maneuver required was actually the shape of a Z, where at the end of Charlie 3 they'd make another 148 degree turn to the right back towards the runway. The Pan Am pilots had been literally thrown a curveball. A study carried out by the Airline Pilots Association after the accident concluded that making the second 148-degree turn at the end of taxiway Charlie 3 would have been practically impossible in a Boeing 747. The official report from the Spanish authorities explains that the controller instructed the Pan Am aircraft to use the third taxiway because this was the earliest exit that they could take to reach the unobstructed section of the parallel taxiway. The ATC had very little experience with 747s and would not have known much about how tightly he'd asked them to turn. We must now consider a few other facts, like the weather. Los Raderos Airport lies just over 2,000 feet above sea level, and the steep mountains mean rapid cloud development. The cloud and fog they were taxiing into was not just a mist, it was a thick cloud, and now the Pan Am crew found themselves in rapidly deteriorating visibility almost as soon as they entered the runway. Visibility dropped from around 500 meters to less than 100. Bizarrely, further up the runway, KLM was still in fairly good visibility, but with clouds blowing down the runway towards them. The aircraft completed its 180-degree turn, relatively clear of mist, and then lined up on runway 30. But a thick cloud was now blowing towards them 3,000 feet down the runway, almost a kilometer away, and moving towards KLM quickly, at 12 knots. I'm sure you can picture the scene. One huge 747 just about to take off, another heading towards it but obscured in a thick cloud. Neither knew exactly what the other was doing, 
other than through the tower's commands or monitoring each other. It is now that the role of cockpit or crew resource management, CRM, and Tenerife collided. The first officer on board KLM read the flight clearance back to the controller, or ATC, and said, We are now at takeoff, indicating they were ready to go. Captain Veltzazen van Zanten interrupted the co-pilot's readback with a comment, We're going, to inform ATC they were ready to go, and actually then pushed the power levers forward. The controller, who could not see the runway due to the fog, remember, initially responded with, Okay, which is non-standard terminology in aviation. What this did is reinforce the KLM captain's misinterpretation that they had take-off clearance. All the ATC had said was that he registered he'd heard the captain. This moment is one of the reasons why takeoff procedures were changed following the disaster. The die, unfortunately, was cast. Everybody was rushing headlong towards doom. The tower thought KLM was ready. The captain thought ATC had given him permission to take off or clearance. So the ATC then said, stand by for takeoff, I will call you. Which was a clear sign that takeoff clearance had not been granted. Unbeknownst to all, there had been a dual transmission on the radio. This was the final nail in KLM's coffin. Radio communications using VHF devices are restricted to one at a time. Two calls cannot be made simultaneously, but this had just happened. Two pilots were trying to talk simultaneously, which causes a squealing sound on the channel. The cockpit voice recorder recovered from KLM plane featured this shrill noise, which lasted three seconds. It's called a heterodune, which caused the KLM crew to miss the last comment by the controller. And what he said was the most critical comment he'd made so far, which was, Stand by for takeoff, I will call you. KLM had not heard this crucial bit of information. The reason for the heterodune was Pan Am had just transmitted a warning saying, We're still taxing down the runway Clipper 1736. Neither the tower nor KLM heard this communication. The problem is, when simultaneous messages are sent, those sending their messages together don't know there's been a simultaneous call. Only third parties know this. So KLM just heard the shrill sound and missed both the Pan Am comment about still taxing and the controller saying, stand by for takeoff, I will call you. What was even worse is no one in this incident could see the other. ATC couldn't see either Boeing and other Boeing could see each other. Things were moving quickly. After the KLM Boeing had started its role and without the controller or the Pan Am crew aware of this fact, the tower instructed Pan Am to report when runway clear. Pan Am crew replied, Okay, we'll report when we're clear. On hearing this, KLM's flight engineer tried to avert disaster. He expressed his concern about the Pan Am Boeing not being clear of the runway by asking his own pilots in his own cockpit, Is he not clear, that Pan American? Veltzhazen von Zanten emphatically replied, Oh yes, and continued with the takeoff. It's this single comment that helped set in motion what we know as CRM in modern aviation. It was vague and non-specific about anything. The KLM Boeing was now accelerating and had reached 140 knots or 260 kilometers per hour. The cockpit voice recorder recovered from Pan Am's Boeing then showed that Captain Grubbs shouted, There he is! As they spotted the KLM Boeing's lights through the thick mist. The Pan Am plane was now close to taxi exit Charlie 4. Could they turn it 
in time. It suddenly became clear that the KLM aircraft was approaching at high speed, and Captain Grubbs exclaimed, God damn, that son of a bitch is coming! First officer Robert Bragg yelled, Get off, get off, get off! Captain Grubbs applied full power and made a sharp left turn towards the grass in a last-ditch effort to avoid disaster. On board the KLM Boeing, the pilots must have seen the Pan Am because the flight data recorder showed the pilots desperately rotated the aircraft in an attempt to climb early despite not having reached airspeed required. This led to a massive tail strike as the KLM plane scraped its underside along the runway for 22 metres. It was also within 100 metres of the Pan Am plane when it left the ground so close. Its nose gear missed the Pan Am Boeing, but the left side engine's lower fuselage and main landing gear ripped through the upper right side of the Pan Am's fuselage, tearing apart the centre of the Boeing above the wing. The KLM right side engines smashed through Pan Am's upper deck just behind the cockpit. One of the heroes of this terrible accident was cabin crew member and purser Dorothy Kelly. She described later how she had been drinking a cup of coffee as the Pan Am flight taxied slowly up the runway, and suddenly she was hit over the head by a piece of the aircraft and forced through the cabin floor into the cargo bay. She woke up in total darkness, dazed and disorientated, completely unaware of what had happened. She spotted a tiny amount of light above her when she headed towards and climbed out into the front of the plane. She was greeted with complete carnage. The KLM plane remained briefly airborne, but the impact had sheared off the outer left engine, caused significant amounts of shredded materials to be ingested by the inner left, and damaged the wings. The plane immediately went into a stall, rolled sharply and hit the ground around 150 metres past the collision, sliding down the runway for a further 300 metres Then the full load of fuel, which the KLM captain had just had pumped into his wings, exploded in a fireball that literally burned the Boeing to a crisp. Ironically, the full fuel load meant the KLM ground roll was longer than had it not refueled. It would have rotated earlier and perhaps missed the Pan Am aircraft. Who knows? One of the 61 survivors of the Pan Am flight, John Coombs, who was from Hawaii, said that sitting in the nose of the plane probably saved his life. We all settled back, and next thing an explosion took place and the whole port side left side of the plane was just torn wide open. He fell out onto the runway. It was the explosions and fuel that killed most, not the impact. As I said, 61 passengers and crew survived, including the captain, first officer and flight engineer, which helped when it came to the following investigation. Most walked out onto the intact left wing, away from the main collision zone and away from the fire. There were huge holes in the fuselage. Much of it was missing. The crew had not managed to turn off the engines or fuel flow. They were in shock and the equipment didn't work anyway, the cockpit portion where the switches were based had been sheared off. So the control lines were gone. The engines and fuel kept pumping, turning the Pan Am into a funeral pyre. Meanwhile, back at ATC, he had no idea that there had been an accident, at least for a minute. Survivors wandered about close to the burning Boeing as it began to explode. Firefighters were not aware that two aircraft had been involved when they eventually mobilized, leading to even more time lost. Terrifyingly, Many of the passengers in the Pan Am Boeing were still sitting in their seats awaiting orders. The firefighters, meanwhile, were concentrating on the KLM wreck hundreds of meters away in the smoke and fog. No one was left alive on that plane, which had exploded on impact. Back at the Pan Am plane, the survivors on the wings and some in the fuselage of the Pan Am Boeing began to drop down 30 feet to the ground. Many were injured as they fell. One woman was lying on the ground and passengers landed on her, leading to horrendous injuries. The rescue vehicles arrived but at first rushed to the burning KLM plane where everyone was already dead. 
because they'd driven up the taxiway towards the smoke, they completely missed the fact that there was a second plane also burning. There are incredible stories of personal bravery, particularly the cabin crew who saved many lives, including those of the captain and first officer who they pulled away from the burning wing seconds before it exploded. Afterwards, during the accident investigation, it was a sensitive matter, as international incidents are. The Spanish defended the staff in the tower, the Dutch defended one of their most senior and distinguished pilots, and Pan Am defended their American pilots. Manufacturer Boeing believed the crash was caused by pilot error, so did the Spanish authorities. The Dutch blamed the Spanish, while the American pilots were certain the Dutch aircrew had caused the accident by taking off without permission in an extremely dangerous situation. Finger-pointing after an aviation accident is like an international sport, I'm afraid. I'm not going to the diplomatic to-and-fro here. The most important matter was how to avoid this kind of accident in the future. Sweeping changes were made to international airline regulations and to aircraft. First, aviation authorities around the world introduced requirements for standard phrases and a greater emphasis on English as a common working language. There was much made of the fact that the Spanish tower staffer was not totally at ease speaking aviation English, as we heard with this comment about one, two, three, third, the third one instead of Charlie three. Second was that air traffic instruction must not be acknowledged solely with a colloquial phrase such as okay or even Roger. I was flying around South Africa recently and someone answered Roger on a reporting channel instead of a firm and another pilot butted in and said, how did you know my name was Roger? Anyone using the phrase Roger is either over 80 years old or a rank amateur. Now, each pilot must conduct a full readback of any instruction by the air traffic controller, which indicates precise mutual understanding. A fourth change was that the word takeoff is now spoken only when the actual takeoff clearance is given or when cancelling that same clearance. Up until that precise point, aircrew and controllers use the word departure. When you're waiting in the holding bay or the taxiway or the apron, a pilot reports, ready for departure. When an ATC clearance is given to an aircraft already lined up on the runway, it must be prefixed with the instruction to hold position, which means no takeoff allowed. The pilot must repeat, hold position, Alpha Bravo Charlie. The fifth safety change was the cockpit procedures I've been harping on about, the cockpit or crew resource management. Hierarchical relations among crew members are now played down and greater emphasis is placed on team decision-making by mutual agreement. The captain has the final say, but should be listening to any other crew member who has a warning about something going wrong. Less experienced flight crew members are now encouraged to challenge their captains when they believe something to be incorrect, and captains are instructed to listen to their crew and evaluate all decisions in light of crew concerns. And so, a year after this terrible accident, a second airport was opened on the island of Tenerife, which replaced the regional airport, and this now serves the majority of international tourist flights. Tenerife North Airport, the renamed Los Rodeos Airport, only began accepting international flights 25 years after the crash in 2002. And now North Airport has ground radar installed so that the tower can see exactly where the aircraft are when they're taxiing or on the apron or waiting for takeoff clearance on the runway. Well, it's time to end this episode. Next episode, I'll delve into the Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 538 accident in June 1960 which led to mandatory installations of cockpit voice recorders in Australia, followed by the rest of the world. I'll also look at the mid-air collision involving United Airlines and Transworld Airlines over New York in 1960, which was the first time a flight recorder was used to provide details in a crash investigation. 
Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time, or send me a direct message if you want to chat on Twitter, at Des Latham. We also have a website, which you can see, and I'm sprucing it up. It's plainecrashdiaries.com. Then you can send me an email through that site. So until we meet, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye. Thank you.